This is Tuesday Morning Grind, episode number 16. Today we have Nicole Davenport. Nicole is the Chief Privacy Officer of High Trust, former Senior Manager at Deloitte, where I know you saw a lot of cool things and a lot of big privacy projects. You're also an IAPP Privacy Fellow and a couple law degrees to your name from Temple and Emory. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Christian. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start off right off the bat with with a hard question. If you're ready, <laughs> why does privacy matter? Why does it matter to society? Why does it matter to businesses? What, should, what do you think there? You know, it's a great question. And I was trying to think through the answer and it hit me. We put all of our personal information in our wallets and purses. You would not walk down the street with your driver's license and your credit card and the pictures of your kids and everything all over out for the world to see. Um, but without good privacy and data protection, that's exactly what we're doing. Um, so I think that's that's why it matters. We are used to, in the pre-digital age, taking care of all of our private information, not sharing it, not having it out there. And we need people to take it from that very physical protection to the online protections. Yeah. I've read some books and there's like theories out there, like what impact lack of privacy has on society. Do you, do you have a sense for that? Like, is it important for the fabric of society? Is it just important? What is it about privacy at its core that is important? You have to also know. <laughs> I do. So I go privacy geeky on this. Um, think about mm-hmm. the the EU. It was created in 1995 after all sorts of you know craziness over the years. What was their first law? It was the European um, directive, the privacy directive. Uh, that was law number one. So in the EU, privacy is a human right um, that transcends just the government. In the U.S., our only right yeah. to privacy is the government can't spy on you, at least for now. California is changing that. Virginia might be changing that. Um, but if you go about it from a perspective of, you know, privacy is a human right, that's the way the Europeans look at it, that makes a lot of sense dates back to the war and the way information, private information, what the GDPR includes as sensitive information. So your religion, your sex, your sexual preferences, all of those things were at the heart of, you know, what Hitler was doing in World War II, which seems so crazy to tie that to privacy. But that really is the link that has everything moving forward. So if you take You know, the privacy directive, which moved into the GDPR, which is then pushing it on the rest of the world. um, It really goes back to that. That gets us to where we are. I think it's intuitive that someone can't come into your house Mm -hmm. or or go through your belongings and and look and stuff. But it's almost a gray area, like with online privacy, you know, and sometimes there's things that seem private but aren't private. So, for example, maybe you're using social media, you're giving away all that information and you think you're only sharing it with, uh, you know, the folks that you're friends with, but you're really sharing it with this whole back-end ecosystem of companies and business to business. And maybe there's an education problem. Where do you think, how do you think we get, how do you think we bring it to the forefront of public consciousness that, hey, when you're giving your information away for free to these products, there's privacy implications. Do you think that's, do you think the earnest is on individuals or is this something more that companies should be doing? I think it's something that companies have to be doing. And in fact, there's some desire by some of the working groups to actually get rid of the FIPS, the Fair Information Privacy Principles, especially that one that deals with consent. Because what you're talking about is we all have to say, 
actually in the US, we have to say, no, I don't want you to have my data because it's the Wild West. There is a presumption that it is okay um, to give away that data. Um, but now with the proposed changes, and, and we saw it in a proposed law from New York last year, is it's changing over to a fiduciary responsibility for businesses. So if a business really wants to be forward thinking from a privacy perspective, they are assuming an opt-in model. They are assuming that they are the fiduciaries of the data that is given to them and they need to protect it as if it is their own data. That's the yeah. forward thinking model. That's the only way it's gonna take the onerous against you and I to protect our privacy. Um, yeah, Phil and I had a, so just to define this, I don't know if everyone's familiar with the fiduciary standard. So Phil and I did a podcast on this recently, but the idea is like, if you have a financial advisor, and they're a fiduciary, they have some responsibility to uh, do care and trust and to act on your best interest when it comes to dealing with your finances. But when it comes to data, companies aren't held to that same standard. It's more like it's passing the buck on to you to consent or not consent or to request your information to be deleted. And I think the New York legislation is thinking more, like you said, forward thinking, mm -hmm. hey, companies, you have a responsibility to act with care and on the individual's you know, best interests when handling that data. Do you think that's pie in the sky? Do you think with all the economic factors, like startups trying to monetize data models, we have AI, we have machine learning, we have a lot of interests when it comes to just the economic value of monetizing data. Do you think it's too much of a task of companies to, to take the fiduciary standard? I, I think you bring up a great point because you mentioned startups. And is that the place to go? I mean, we've got the big three right now. You know, we've got Google coming up with its Flock system, at least I'm assuming they're calling it Flock and Pelosi, where they're getting rid of cookies. That definitely is taking it to the forefront. You've got Apple with their, you know, we've all got it, the, you know, the privacy hygiene labels on there. Facebook is trying like everything to try to get it up there. So when you've got the big three like that, really coming out in support of privacy in a way that is business friendly, I think they can handle it. Um, when you get to the startups, it is going to be a little bit trickier because it adds on an element. But that's why GDPR called out privacy by design. It's, you know, if you can get to it at the beginning as you're building out your product and integrate privacy in during the build, um, I think you can meet your corporate goals. It just, you know, you don't want to go right to market and the day before market hit your privacy or your lawyer and say, hey, is this okay? Because it's never going to be okay. Yeah. Um, but if you really have that built into the life cycle, I think any business can accommodate. Yeah. So we do a lot of consulting work with what I, what I would consider high growth tech companies. So companies that are on the forefront of technology in general. Um, and I will say that at the executive level, they're not even, they're not thinking about privacy in a deep level, not because they're bad people or they have intent to do bad. It's just that these are vocabulary words that they're not familiar with concepts, mm -hmm. you know, so they don't, they're not thinking in terms of a privacy bill of rights. So they may well build a product that doesn't meet the fiduciary standard. So, so it feels like there has to be an education thing that happens with everyone, I guess. Do you see any of that happening? Is there, is there a way, a path forward to get this in the common lexicon of our colleagues out there? You know, every year it is more and more. Uh, you know, what happened, you know, in, in the aughts, when I started getting involved in privacy, it wasn't really a thing. And then GDPR exploded and it was all of a sudden in newspapers and then CCPA hit. And I was out in California working on a client at the time and like little tiny local county newspapers were writing articles about the CCPA in California to get people 
interested. Mm -hmm. We've now got Virginia and a couple of other states that are moving forward. Every time this happens, not to mention what's going on with the big tech companies, it brings it a little bit further to the public consciousness. I mean, now the articles are in the New York Times, they're in Forbes, so maybe they're still in the business media, but at least they're out there a lot more than they were five years ago. Um, so I feel like yeah. it's, you know, it's just going to keep rolling and rolling and rolling down the hill. Um, and we're not quite at the start, but but pretty close to the start. Yeah, I, I'm all I'm always stuck in how I think about this because on the one hand, it's like, I, I like the idea of self-regulation. I like the idea of these companies being um, forward thinking, putting privacy first, but also I don't see a lot of incentive for them to do that. So then there, there comes regulation to try to give the appropriate incentive to do that. Do you think that, do you think companies are going to solve this on their own? And, and do you think, or do you think reg regulations are going to be required? Oh, only regulations going to do it. No, no one's going to do this voluntarily. I mean, I've been trying to figure out for years, as have many people, how do you get an ROI on your privacy spend? It's just not yeah. clear. And people have come up with all sorts of convoluted ways to try to back it in. And there are a lot of articles that say if you are privacy centric, if you are privacy forward, if you have that trust from your consumer, it does hit the bottom line. But nobody can draw a straight line between that that A to B process. Security is the same way. Like we, we try to make the argument of, uh, hey, you're not going to be able to get a contract signed unless you have a story around security. The same is happening with mm -hmm. privacy to a certain extent. Or you can make the sustainability argument. You know, if you continuously violate the trust of your customers, they're probably going to stop using you. But you have to have kind of a visionary as a leader to worry about, you know, the future of my customers. So, so I don't know. Um, well, that's why, and then why regs to... come in. I mean, think about it. Yeah. The regulation, you know, the GDPR changed the world. As you said, I was at Deloitte and I got there right before, I guess in 2016, right before they signed the GDPR and the explosion mm -hmm. across the U.S. with international companies that had to get involved in that because that 4% yeah. fine scared the living crap out of people. And here we are almost yeah. three years later and there's been no 4% fines whatsoever. Yeah. And, you know, what does that that do. You know, what I liked about that is, um, you know, GDPR talked about what we were getting ready people for was a defensible position. And the EU regulators really have taken into account with all of their fines, the fact that people didn't ignore the reg, you know, that, that they tried. They might not have been perfect, but at least they did a lot of work. It's those people who completely ignored it are the ones that got the larger fines. Um, I think we'll see that probably in California after the, the CPRA, once the board gets set up to start looking at right. these things. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens when we have our own data protection board, at least in one of our yeah. states. That, that There's no enforcement, right? So at, at the state level, I mean, GDPR is some enforcement. If you're a big player, you probably have to worry about it if you're Google or Facebook. Um, but the U.S., until the CPRA, but that's in 2023, mm -hmm. Um, do you think that that's a trend we're going to see here in the U.S. is not only standing up a regulation, but also having some enforcement mechanisms behind it? Right now, most of the proposed regs have the AG as the enforcement me mechanism, which isn't mm -hmm. bad. They've all, you know, they've always been the ones in the different states providing, um, you know, data protection and privacy types of protections for the citizens. I think what we're going to have to see over the next few years, and I was the biggest naysayer about this, and all of a sudden with Virginia, I have changed my story. I think there's gotta be a federal law. Um, there's no way to deal with this as a piecemeal from a corporate perspective, because if you just compare you know, CCPA and the Virginia law, 
you know, one is opt, you know, one is opt in, one is opt out. One, you know, the the standards are not exactly the same. And if I'm a corporation, how am I going to have this patchwork? You know, there's not a way to really yeah. geolocate. There is if you're going to geolocate your EU business or your Asia business from your US business. But a lot of my clients, when we were putting together CCPA, like. I don't know if somebody's coming in from Oregon or from Nevada, right on the edge. Like, there's no. We just have to do this. Um, and the yeah. more that that happens, coming up with a national standard. You know, I keep talking about the big tech companies, but they supported Virginia. Like, you have industry saying yes, we need a privacy standard. You've got the Chamber of Commerce, the National Chamber of Commerce, which is traditionally a very conservative body coming to Congress saying, we need a national standard. Our people need yeah. to know what we have to do across the board. Piecemeal's not cutting it anymore. And with Kamala Harris in the White House as our vice president, having been the former California AG, I think she can can lead and, and spearhead that through. I'm always, I always wonder if there's too much, um, too much incentive at the federal level for, because the, Let's just face it, the U.S. is one of the biggest spying apparatuses in the, in the world. So I, I wonder if they are afraid if they bring a regulation to the fore that that will shine a light back on them and they're not willing to deal with that. Like, is there too much conflict of interest for them to do it knowing that, you know, there's a problem? Or I don't want to say there's a problem, but they're definitely spying and violating privacy. But so is every country in the world. This is the problem yeah. I have with it. You know, so the Snowden revelations are what ended up having the safe harbor fall apart and then you know, the mm -hmm. privacy shield fall yeah. apart and everybody going crazy about the new standard contractual clauses. And that all has to do with our government spying. But Germany is spying and England is spying and every country in the developed world. China has a privacy yeah, regulation, I mean, for example. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So I think it's ultimately a protectionist thing, because if you can stop data transfers and keep them on, you know, on your premises, so in this case, the EU, and you keep the data there, well, gosh, that's a great business driver. It's kind of like what, you know, Delaware did for it becoming the corporate law center. So that was a race, actually a race to the bottom, probably more than a race to the top, but they created all these special laws. So everybody goes and registers in Delaware with their corporation. Um, I think the EU a little bit wants that with all of the data processors and say, okay, well, let's just have all of your servers here. You don't need to, you know, to do business outside the EU. Yeah. And so I think there's a little bit of a market driver going that way in addition to everything else. Yeah, I, I always wonder if, you know, it's easy to say let's raise the bar when you have the resources to do it. So like is Facebook, Apple, um, others in that category being a little bit disingenuous and that they're like, yeah, let's regulate all the competitors out of business because no one else can comply with it as effectively as we did. Because someone tried to start a YouTube today and do comment moderation and, and everything or a search engine, it'd be, it'd be really tough to comply with those without a significant amount of resources. But on the other hand, it's like, you got to do it. So you got to leave it up to the market. Have you heard in privacy circles, anyone, like I think, I think CPRA kind of did this. They had kind of a tiered like if you had below a certain number of records, it wasn't, it didn't apply to you, I think is what uh, CPR did. Like if you had less than a hundred thousand records or something, I thought that was an interesting way to like not destroy small businesses while also in, in doing privacy. Do you think that'll be a trend? Well, yeah, Virginia has already done it. Uh, in fact, Virginia yeah. does not apply to as many people as California does. Because uh, it has to do, mm -hmm. you've got to get more than 50% of your income from selling data, I believe is what it was. Yeah. Um, and then, 
I forget what the other requirement was. It was a little bit smaller. Yeah, I think that's a, a very interesting model um, because that, that does exclude many small businesses. And the, theoretically, when sh it does become 50% of your revenue, you probably should care about privacy at that point. Uh, I would think so. If, if you're selling data, it's going to be tricky. I mean, I, I think what Google is doing is incredibly novel. It's very interesting with getting rid of cookies. And you, know, you talk yeah. about people trying to get each other out of business. If Google gets rid of cookies, then that really harms the competition because they don't have the infrastructure set up to be able to do the same things that Google is trying to do. Yeah. And how does that help you as a consumer? I find it really tricky because if I read it right about Google, you know, they're basically using differential privacy or de-identified data to put you in a group um, where, you know, I'm, you know, mom to kids and I happen to like, you know, lunch boxes or something. And they're going to shove out to all moms who like lunch boxes. Not the fact that I was just on Amazon looking at the Barbie lunchbox. And um, sure. if I go to Amazon and say, you know, I don't ever want to see that Barbie ad again, they're not going to be able to say no because they don't know who I am the way they do right now with my cookies. I'm just in a cohort of all moms who like lunch boxes. Um, so when you get to privacy and, and a lot of people think about it, it's that creepy factor. You know, it's the fact that you were just looking for something and it shows up, you know, on the upper side of your computer a few times later. And I would think if I do a do not, you know, a delete me request or do not sell my information request for somebody and they get back to me and say, oh, well, we don't really know who you are. You're like, hmm, you just served me that really, really applicable ad. Yeah. You don't know who I am. Um, so it's great because they actually don't know who you are. But I think that that's going to get companies in a little bit of hot water because people aren't going to understand yeah. that technology. Yeah. I'm, so, A, I'll commend Google, Facebook, others, because they have made huge strides. Like, I don't want to take away from that. You can go, there's tons of privacy settings. They've invested significant resources to try to solve that problem. So uh, credit where credit is due. However... <laughs> yeah. If I'm going to complain about them, you know, they have the infrastructure to do this stuff. Like you take the Google's business model. Well, most people are probably using Chrome. 50% uh, of the market's using Android uh, cell phones. Um, they're probably using Google search. They're probably in the Google ad ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera. They don't need cookies the way that some companies do. So they have, a, and they also have the Google voice and Chromebooks and everything else. So I just wonder like these big giants, they can do things that a lot of companies can't like get rid of cookies because they have such an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. I'd say Apple and Facebook are in a similar boat and that's a huge competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. So if I'm them, I'm kind of wanting to ramp this privacy thing up just a little mm -hmm. bit because I might be the only one that can handle it. This is complete speculation. I'm just wondering these like big chess games that the, the big players are playing. I bet there's, I just like to imagine some boardroom where they're, <laughs> they're thinking through this stuff. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's really interesting. Apple jumped out early with nutrition yeah. labels and everybody thought that was gonna be great. And it was supposed to be in 14 and, and they're there and I look at them and they're, you know, kind of, they're there and you look at them, uh, you know, Google then, all of a sudden sends out the emails to everybody who's ever been on Google saying, how long do you want to retain your YouTube history? You know, how long do you want to retain your emails? They actually voluntarily went out and gave people controls, at least of a retention, uh, which I think is amazing mm. because I help dozens of companies get ready for privacy laws and retention is always an issue. Um, so that yeah. Google jumped out for its, you know, its consumers to help with retention, I thought was great. Um, but it's, it's not, it's not an easy problem. It's not going to be solved quickly. 
it is the wild yeah. west here. There is no requirement that other than, you know, in California with do not sell my data, you know, companies can do whatever they want with the data. So oh, this is related, but also I want to talk about like your personal operating system when it comes to privacy, because some of the stuff that concerns me, especially like I'm, I'm raising a daughter and trying to, I'm st they're too young, so I'm still considering like how I want to broach this topic with them or how much education is going to make sense. But I think about a few things. I think about uh, social media, which I think a lot of folks think about. I think about echo chambers. Mm -hmm. I think about how um, YouTube always recommends the same videos to me endlessly. So I'm not getting new information. I think about Amazon pretty much knows exactly what kind of wardrobe I want and they do a great job recommending stuff to me. I think about book recommendations, uh, podcast recommendations. They're all really good. They're, they're, ca they're catered to me. But also, I'm uh, not getting exposed to other information, perhaps. Like, maybe I want to change my style up, or I want to change up uh, some reading materials, etc. And uh, I think about that with my kid, who is going to grow up, probably get a cell phone, or definitely get a cell phone, going to have a, a completely curated life, mm -hmm. you know, from, from age, she's seven right now, so seven till the rest of her life curated. Yeah. And I wonder what the societal impact of that is. Like, it's like the technological society. We start thinking about privacy and the scopes and boundaries. This is really theoretical, but do you see that element shaping society in any way? Like, do you think that Christian, it's a weird I, I thing? I don't want to like get political, but I think that that is a yeah. prime example of how curated news really impacts all of us. Because right. we only see the stories yeah. that agree with our opinion. And so you've got, mm -hmm. you know, a, a bifurcated way that people are looking at the, at the world. And so that echo chamber and the information is out there becomes really important. Um, that's why you've got people like, you know, Facebook and Twitter trying to moderate content. It's going to get you to a, an issue of whether or not private companies could yeah. be, you know, should be moderating content. They're trying to figure it out, too. It's a hard problem. It's a new yeah. problem. It's, you know, it didn't exist. And this conversation we're having now, 15 years from now, is going to be an obsolete conversation because technology will have gone a, a whole new way. Hopefully it will go in a way that allows more protection for people. Um, and that does mm -hmm. open up that scope because I think it becomes very detrimental when all you hear is what you want to hear. But at the same time, isn't it so convenient? You know, we, we give up yeah. our privacy rights to get something. So, you know, we give up some of our privacy rights so we get the great recommendations for what we want to do. So we don't have to put our password in every single time. Um, the, the question is, you know, where do you draw that line? How much are you willing to give up for convenience? How big do you want your profile to be? You know, because the more you yeah. give up, and I'm not really a social media person. I've got twins who are in college. Fortunately, they post on Instagram about once a year which is unheard of. Um, it, it, You've done a great uh, job then as a mom. <laughs> well, I'm really lucky. But then, you you know, you hear in the news all the time, you know, what was it? One of the um, the people who was up for a, a position in Biden's White House administration, they didn't like her, you know, her tweets. And that stuff stays yeah. with you your whole life long. Um, ultimately, should we have some control over the fact that I wrote something really stupid when I was 18? And now I'm 28 and I'm trying to get a job. And how do I make that go away? That should have been personal. Um, I don't know. How do we train kids not to do that? I, I would say it would make sense to put privacy training somewhere along the way before kids get out of high school, probably before they get out of grade school. But I would also say kids are supposed to get financial literacy education, too. And that doesn't always happen. Yeah. Are you seeing companies? So like I, 
to me, a lot of this stuff's tied together. Mm -hmm. So technology is moving light, light, lightning fast. Privacy, I feel like took us by storm. It was just one day an issue, or mm -hmm. at least, at least publicly. I, I think those on the know have been thinking about this for a long time, but as a society, it was suddenly a problem. In the back of my head, I'm thinking about things like uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and um, and like deep fake videos and stuff like that, sources of information and even decision making. So if you're inundated with information all day long, that influences the way you think. I, I say all that to say, do you think that there's room for privacy curriculum? And, and based on you, you talk to a lot of really cool people, people are coming up with legislation, things like that. Is that the top of mind? Because I know we're really focused on corporate privacy concerns and regulations, but what about education at the at the societal level? Have you have you heard anything about that? Like education? I haven't. I'm just curious. No, I mean, you've got some people out there who are in the industry. Um, I don't know if you've seen Dan Solov, who's a, a big professor at uh, George Washington. Mm -hmm. He wrote a kid's book about privacy. Um, so, you know, there yeah. are some attempts, but it, it's still... I would say when I joined the IAPP, I think in 2015, there were about 5,000 members. Right now, there are close to 30,000 members. Obviously, this is exploding out there and providing people with opportunities, just like it's pro provided, you know, her 360 with a new opportunity to reach out beyond beyond security. Um, it's out there. And so I think the more of us involved in privacy, the more evangelizing that will go on and it will go out. But yes, it happened fast. I mean, when when... CCPA seemingly came out of nowhere once it got on the ballot uh, the first time <laughs> around. Um, and that did change the discourse yeah. a lot. What was that now? I mean, that just came into effect at the beginning of last year. And then last year, yeah, it's already been upgraded. Yeah, well, yeah, it's already been upgraded and last year fell apart. So no one really had much idea of what to look at. Yeah. I think that the bigger question will be later this year when we all start going back to offices and getting on planes, how much privacy are we going to give up with our vaccinations? That's a, that's a whole other. Yeah, exactly. And it'll come at every, every, every turn. turn. Um, when it comes to your personal operating system, is there, are there things like when you're coaching a friend or your children or anything like that? Uh, do you have a, do you have a smartphone? Are there apps that you use or don't use? Do you, are you cognizant of this technologically? Like do you operate differently because you are? Wouldn't it know? be nice if I did? Um, I have freezes on all my credit and that is the thing that I tell yeah. everybody because it's really the only control. I mean, everybody gets a data breach and I'm like, oh, let me give you credit monitoring. Well, if you get a hit on your credit monitoring, somebody's already taken your credit. Um, I have the freezes on my credit. It's a pain in the butt if I want to go buy a car or get a mortgage because I've got to call all three agencies and say, hey, can you lift this? But realistically, I'm never going to get a notice from my credit monitoring, say somebody got your data because I've had it happen to me before when I'm standing at the checkout. I'm like, oh, do you want a Nordstrom card? I'm like, oh, sure. And then you get that, oh my gosh, my cheeks are bright red because I just you know, failed. Like, oh, I failed because I've got freezes on my credit. Yeah. But if it's going to fail for me, it's going to fail for somebody else trying to steal my identity. Yeah, that's always a good Yeah, idea. I mean, I think that's the only really safe bet because, what do you, you know, I go through my privacy settings. I try to keep them at the minimum. I'm trying to do when people say the cookies to actually look on it. I really look because I'm curious as to who their cookie provider is. But yeah. um, then I reset and say I'm only willing to have functional cookies. So I'm trying to get better about it. I have an incredibly low social media footprint because I think that's the biggest problem. Um, Do you have a low social media footprint because of your privacy consciousness or you just don't like it? Both. You know, when you start talking yeah. about AI and machine learning, 
the broader your footprint across the internet is, the better somebody can make a story about you and start pegging you and profiling you. Obviously, the more stuff you give up on your Instagram, your Facebook, your Twitter, you know, that helps that profiling. And that's the business that those businesses are in. I mean, it's nice that we all get free pictures to share with our friends, but really they make money from the advertising. Um, so I don't do a lot of that. I don't know if I would do it anyway, but yeah, Amazon knows everything about me, just like Amazon knows your your clothing preferences. Sure. Uh, sure. I. I I try to take it, I think there's kind of two extremes, perhaps, and everything in the middle, but like we have some guys in our pen test team that are ghosts on the internet for the most part. They have nothing. And that's kind of one extreme. Uh, the, I think the extreme I take is I try to take extreme projection of my image, you know? So like I, I do have a Christian Hyatt Twitter and a Christian Hyatt email and a Christian Hyatt, et cetera, because I'm like, well, at least I own yeah. it and I can curate the content. Even if I choose not to use it, at least I can own it. But and I know there's everything in between, but that's the route I take. What about great products because, or, or even companies? I've been trying to look for, um, like for example, every once in a while I'll, I'll see a privacy policy mm -hmm. and it'll be really good. It'll use pictures, it'll use really good uh, human readable format mm -hmm. language, it'll guide you through. Or I'll run into an, a nonprofit that's doing some really interesting uh, research around privacy. I think Stanford's doing some cool stuff. So taking those in two silos, are there any companies that you think just do a great job that, that we should be aware of? No. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of companies are out there trying. Some people have great websites. Um, I think I was looking at one this summer, I think it was 23andMe. Just their privacy notice was so digestible and in you know very nice parts, but you know, they're still using all of my data to create medicines. Uh, well, if I gave yeah. them my, my data, I would not give any, any of the, those companies, uh, you know, my data, because then you don't own it. And it's it's one of those things, sure. you know, I, I wrote when I was doing my LLM, a law review article on the Internet of Things and the privacy laws in the U.S. that attach to it and your Fitbits. If you read your Fitbit privacy policy, at least um, back then, you know, Fitbit owns all your personal data. I'm, I'm super skeptical of any healthcare stuff. I don't use a Fitbit. I don't, I'm not doing any ancestry stuff mm -hmm. because, you know, the next thing you do is get a, a insurance hike in the mail or something. I think <laughs> everybody's like waiting for that. Yeah, day. but then, okay, so do the flip side uh, because I used to do a lot of work for automobile manufacturers and the cars are basically yeah. just computers on wheels now. And mm -hmm. what they're doing with data monetization in the computer systems are, you know, they're trying to set it up. So when you go into a mall parking lot and you're driving past the Starbucks, boom, right on your screen, you get the 10% off your next latte. Yeah. Um, you know, mm, is that great? Is that not great? For some people, it is amazingly terrific. But where do you draw that line? And in something like that with your vehicle or your Fitbit, you know, your, your Fitbit's too small. There's not going to be a privacy policy on there. You're not going to get in your car every time and see the privacy every single time you turn on your car. So how are you getting consent? What happens if, you know, your 17 year old is driving your car and it's not you. And all of a sudden you're getting, you know, that type of information to track a kid who's yeah. under 18. It's it's very difficult when you start talking about how you're going to give consent, which is why there is strength for that fiduciary model that I talked about earlier. Because yeah, so yeah. many places, consent is not meaningful, and there's no way to give meaningful consent. And even if you give it once, there's not really any way to change your settings later. 
Yeah. I've, I've long said that this is probably not the right words, but I think there needs to be a privacy bill of rights. So like in, inviolable rules that everyone upholds and it, you know, you don't do it. And that, that's kind of the fiduciary standard, I think, uh, at least leaning that direction. But to your point, there's, I don't foresee companies leaving money on the table willingly. Mm -mm. Not when I can serve up ads, not when, uh, you know, there's just so much opportunity when it comes to harvesting and using data to make decisions and everything else that, it's, it's too appetizing, I think, without some major mindset for society. And I don't know if we'll be able to do that. No, that's why it goes back to regulation. You know, it, it's going to be the, the government slapping people's fingers saying, okay, no, you can't go that far with it. Uh, because otherwise yeah. there is a desire to monetize it unless you can figure out how your ROI is there. And you can really differentiate yourself by saying, hey, we take privacy over and above everybody which is the battle we're seeing yeah. now between big tech. A problem of it, a lot of it is just really, really glamorous lip service. You know, like they've got the Chanel yeah. lipstick on. It looks, pretty, you know, it looks really nice, but yeah. it's still lip service. Yeah, I mean, I think about things like automated decision-making or like every time I go to make a, 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 we have some clients that do mortgage lending or do credit underwriting, things like that. And you know, they're, I talked to an executive and they're really trying to do the right thing. They're trying to make this process efficient. They're trying to make it fair. They're trying to make it widely accessible. So many different types of individuals can go through the lending process and, and get that done. They're trying to create efficiencies and cost reduction for the, for the companies. So they don't have to have human beings doing the mm -hmm. underwriting. So their intent is great. But then on the back end, I'm like, well, they've built this algorithm based on sometimes machine learning or AI, or, the, or at least the early forms of that to make a credit decision. Mm -hmm. For, for people. And I'm like, okay, this, all of my signals are going off because that's a classic GDPR, right? Like anything that's automated. Well, what if you build in a bad algorithm mm -hmm. or what if you're accidentally uh, discriminating against individuals and you don't even know it or X, Y, Z, you know, that stuff worries me. I think it's coming down. I think it's going to be more and more popular. You can already see it with news articles and YouTube and decision and uh, lending that stuff keeps him up at night. Is, are there, I say all that to say, are there emerging technologies that you're tracking or that, that when you hear about it, just it's a cause for concern? I could say it's all a cause for concern. The question is, are there any solutions on the horizon? Um, sure. And that is harder. I mean, I think the differential privacy for larger companies is what we're going to see a bigger movement towards so that you can still grab the information about people, but you're putting them in, in buckets so that if you lose my information, you're not gonna be able to re-identify me. Um, but we've lived, I mean, think about it. We've been in the wild west forever in the US. Privacy was never a right here. The only right to privacy was that the government can't barge into your house. Um, and so it's gonna take some time to get over that issue. And I don't have a great solution for you. I wish I did. Yeah, I, I don't know what society is going to look like if we don't fix it. I don't think it has to be fixed completely, but we at least have to make an adjustment, you know? And, and I don't know what that looks like. That's a very hard philosophical question. Like, what's, what should society look like? But when I think about society for my kids, it's not just regulation. That's a key part of it. But it's also, you know, enough inherent privacy that people can still go on making their own decisions and have a a thoughtful conversation, that whole thing. And I wonder how far astray we're going to get. Cause I, I, I do talk to people and I'll use like my, my family, you know, who 
they're not at all tech savvy. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of run of the mill folks. And uh, I'll catch them saying things. I can like, I can tell exactly what you browse on Facebook mm -hmm. or, you know, okay. Uh, you told me what books you've read recent, recently and they were all the Amazon bestsellers. Like there were no nuanced books. They're all Amazon bestsellers. So I wonder to myself, how much does that um, control the, the person you are? You know, and, and that's a weird thought, but if you consume certain types of information, you listen to certain types of music, you only watch the same types of videos, then you get this, monoth I guess, monoth uh, monolithic society <laughs> that has very little deviation. And that's I, that sounds very negative, and I'm not trying to be negative about it, but it's an interesting thought exercise yeah. that how do you ensure variety when you're all being said, fed the same exact information and what's the impact on society? I have no answer. Yeah, to but are you really all getting fed the same information? Yes and no. Yeah, a top 10 list, sure. Uh, but, you know, my search for Barbie is probably different than, you know, your search for Tonka trucks, although you said you had a daughter. Sure. <laughs> I had one of each. Um, you know, we are getting something that um, is within our wheelhouse. It may not be mm. similar to each and every one of us. So I, I can understand, you know, we end up down that singularized rabbit hole because we're getting the same curated features, but I don't know that everybody else is. I don't either. I yeah, don't and it'll be hard. I mean, I think that goes back to one of those original privacy principles of transparency. And it's in all of these laws. If I am in California, yeah. I can ask a company, what do you have about me? And what algorithms are you using? How are you deciding to build your profile about me? We live in Georgia. Yeah, we, we can't ask that, I, you know? Yeah. They can't ask it at Google. That, I, I listened to a really good talk and it was like, no one at Google can tell you how the algorithm works, the search one. Because A, it's been, uh, there's some AI going on. There, it's doing some things by itself. The people who created it are uh, four generations ago. So there's some of that too. So it's an interesting, I think it's great. The transparency is great, but also like the follow on. How do you act on a request like that? is completely foreign to me. I have no idea how someone would do well, that. Well, there are a lot of companies who jumped into that space who are doing data subject access requests and they've built whole yeah. models on just doing that uh, because it's not easy. I mean, it takes all of the traditional, you know, the life cycle of privacy to be able to do that. You gotta know where your data is, what data you have, where it sits and what it's being used for and why you have it and who you're sharing with it just before you can ever think about a DSAR or data subject request. Yep. Um, that's a, that's, those are really cool technologies too. Like, I love it. Then when a problem seems insurmountable, somebody comes along and they're like, well, here's a way to do it. And you're like, well, that's a really good. Yeah. Idea. <laughs> no, there's some really great stuff. And, and I think what we will end up seeing a lot more of that because you're not going to be able to comply with all of these laws without some sense of automation, unless you're a really small mm. shop or you're a B2B. Like we're B2B, you're B2B, you know, we're not getting a lot of data subject requests. I, I got one when I first started and it was the first one we never had at, at High Trust. Uh, we, we have never gotten Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just not a high risk kind of place to be. But, you know, I've had sneaker companies as my clients and they get a thousand a day or at yeah. least did right mm -hmm. at the very beginning. Um, so there's got to be a lot of technology going forward. Um, and, and standardization. Sure. I mean, this is the problem that I think about a lot of, at High Trust because our product is, you know, amalgamating all sorts of different rules from a security perspective, from a privacy perspective. And then, you know, our nonprofit puts together what that framework looks like. So yeah. I start looking at all of the frameworks all around the rules and world and think, okay, you know, we've got the 80-20 rule. 
80%, they're all the same. They all encompass the, the same big ideas, the privacy laws. And then what do you do with those extra 20s around the world? And it, you know, it depends on where you are and, and who you are. But if you're a business, you, you, you can't run just on the 20s. You know, like where do you figure out what is enough? How do you validate that? In fact, we have a commitment to privacy. It's a big commitment to privacy. We are meeting almost everything. And then when we go into a new market, we do those little over on over and above. So, so that's a good, good segue. So if you're an organization, uh, you want to do some diligence on your partners, like your sub processes or any vendor that you're handing data over to. I think the way it's largely done is contractually mm -hmm. today. But if you're if you're helping a company kind of make partnership decisions, there is no privacy certification right now. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But outside of some type of independent certification, what things do you advise people to look for? If I'm a business and I want to vet a vendor, are there anything, any 10 things or a few things that you, you know, right for? now it's so piecemeal. And this is, as you said, I've been talking yeah. to a lot of people in the industry, a lot of our thought leaders in privacy and procurement is just a constant you know, how do you figure out? Because you'll get a new contract. Yep. Everything is done by the contracts. Contracts are in a tizzy right now with Privacy Shield falling apart and the FCC is yep. getting upgraded. Yep. And it's the same questionnaire back to that 80-20. It's almost the same, but everybody has their own little pieces, parts to it. And they're never audited. It's just you are trusting whoever you are doing business with to have answered, you know, to have done their due diligence and have answered those questions correctly. Super problem on a click through. You know, I, I know we've got people who are accepting terms that if they thought about it for a minute, probably would be negotiating those terms. And that's all over the place. Um, the more you contract, the harder it is. I think, you know, in, in our, our security framework, which allows for that problem to be solved because you do the high trust certification, mm -hmm. you know, assess once, use many. <laughs> Uh, all over the place. Yeah. And that is, I think, what, what people are moving towards. I know a lot of the pet privacy enhancing technology providers are trying to get into the third party management area just because this is, is the biggest problem. And where are you going to come up with a singularized standard, especially when, as we were just talking, we're B2B. We've got a different risk profile than a B2C company, much larger risk profile. So do you have a standard questionnaire for everybody? Um, there are so many variables in privacy that I think make it harder than security. Although security people argue with me the other way. Yeah, so it's interesting because there's a, a lot of security certifications or variants that you can get. High Trust has a great one. You guys have created an ecosystem um, to get a security certification. On the privacy side, there's uh, not a lot. You can do like a SOC 2 with the privacy tack on that is not a great representation of privacy generally. Um, you can do uh, ISO 27001 and 27701. I think that's better, um, but it is onerous and it requires that individuals kind of have an understanding of that framework. Um, and from what I understand, High Trust is trying to solve that problem as well. You have your security one, which is well adopted. Tons of companies use that, and you're thinking about a privacy one. I know it's early. Can you talk about that? It is early. I can say that you know our CSF, our, our common security framework, has a lot of the privacy regulations in it already. Uh, we are adding more. Yeah. I think, you know, we're about ready to release V10. So a complete refresh. Yeah. It's going to have, a, I think we're going to have seven different privacy authoritative sources embedded in it. Uh, 
of course, that's always on the upgrade because, you know, Virginia just got passed. Canada's going to throw a new one. Yep. Um, but what I am hoping to do is tease out those privacy certifications and uh, our privacy controls and move towards a privacy certification that will work in the same way that our security certification works. Uh, as you said, yep. it's early days, but it is taking a lot, of, almost all of my attention these days. When I talk to people like yourself and others that are uh, care about privacy, experts on privacy, and also working towards making privacy better in the world of security or in the world of uh, certifications and others, that's great. Like I'm, I'm happy that you're at the helm doing that, and thank you for for doing that. I, I find it incredibly exciting because I know from when I was at Deloitte and going into so many different companies, you know, we would create a different framework for every client based on what their needs were and. I could not go from, you know, client A to client C and say, oh, yeah, you guys can contract with each other because you're on the same page. Because they weren't necessarily on the same page. Um, so if there's yeah. something that we can do to get it further to level the playing field so that people are speaking in the same language. I think that will long term help solve some of the problems. And, you know, maybe that turns into that ROI. You can say, all right, well, we spent yep. this, but we've got we've got a certification and therefore it's quantifiable spend. And it gives us a floor. You know, people know that we take this seriously and that we have put a strong level of effort into it. Um, but yeah, and I will say with this V10, we are reorganizing privacy to align with the ISO standards because for GDPR, Great. that's really what they are looking for. And so NIST is in there, but it's more ISO formulated. And that's in the whole common security framework already. Like it's, it is there. You can pull out all of the privacy things. Oddly, only a small number of people do that, um, which I find so strange because I've been such a committed privacy person, but you know, hopefully the uptake will be good. Awesome. Well, Nicole, thank you for joining and thank you for talking about privacy and everything that you guys are doing and you guys at High Trust are doing. If you enjoyed this conversation, uh, we post something new every Tuesday. You can check out Tuesday Morning Grind on the podcast, any any podcast app you like. You can also check it out on YouTube if you want to look at these beautiful faces <laughs> while we do it. Uh, so, Nicole, thank you very much for your time and I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Christian.